Hello, and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the topics that matter most to Canadians across business and economics. I'm your co-host, Sarah Brantnika. And I'm Taylor Scollin. So Taylor, the cost of things is going up. I've noticed it. I'm sure you've noticed it. Everyone's talking about it. I'm wondering if anything about the way that you're spending money has changed over the last year in response to the price of things just skyrocketing. Yeah, for sure. I'm definitely way more conscious about what I buy at the grocery store now. Like I actually compare everything on the shelf and make sure that I'm getting like the cheapest package of chicken per kilogram and the cheapest jug of yogurt. Uh, Because if you don't, it's just, it's crazy. Like you walk out and you've spent $150 for three days worth of food. Yeah, the listeners might want to know that I've actually personally seen you come into the office with a large block of cheddar cheese, and you told me you just had to get it. Yeah, and you know why I bought it? I did, because it was a great deal. (laughs) It was like $7 off, and when I see that discount on cheese, I buy it. Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that go into what determines that cost of cheese, of course, and there's a lot of really, you know, smart people working behind the scenes, consultants, Um, then there's, you know, people at the retail level, all kind of figuring out, you know, what is the cost of everything, you know, in the grocery aisles, in the clothing aisles, you know, the cost of things that we buy every single day. And I know it's something that everybody is thinking about. So who better to have on the podcast than someone who has had their ear to the ground when it comes to the retail industry, when it comes to prices across the sector um, in all of you know the country's biggest retailers. Marty Weintraub is here with us today. Marty leads the National Retail Consulting Practice for Canada at Deloitte. For the past 20 years, he's advised retail clients on developing and implementing enterprise-wide retail transformation and operational improvement programs that impact business processes, organization designs, and technology enablement. Marty, thank you so much for coming on Free Lunch. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a bit of a audit on kind of some of these supply chain issues that we were hearing all about, it seems like a year ago. Um, The headlines were filled with news about shortages of different products, of ports being clogged up, you know, people not being able to get their, you know, things in time for Christmas. Has that all been resolved? Yeah, so it depends on point in time. I would say if we sit here right now, roughly, you know, end of Q1, March 2023, a lot of the supply chain challenges from a year, two years ago, uh, have predominantly subsided. And, you know, just to cite a couple of statistics, if you look at, you know, 40 foot container rates, which is a little bit of a benchmark, or was a benchmark around how, you know, how bad the pressure in the system was, those costs, if you remember, were super, super high a year, year and a half ago. Um, you know, let's call it from uh, from Asia to, you know, California or Vancouver, as an example, those 40 foot containers got up to probably about $10,000, maybe even higher. You know, as of February, March this year, those have come down to under $2,000. So you can kind of see they've dropped about 80, 90% from the peak. So that's kind of point one. And that does, you know, a lot of the clogging we had in the ports, um, a lot of it was just due to, quite frankly, demand was this high, supply was like this. And therefore, prices for containers went up. And then you had factories going down or a whole bunch of stuff that were happening back then that are really not so much happening now. So that would sort of be point one. The other point, quite frankly, is demand is starting to slow. So although we are seeing very high inflation, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that shortly, um, the consumer demand right now, although it's remained fairly strong and persistently strong, that might be surprising both 
here in the U.S. and other countries, we are starting to see signals finally of the interest rate hikes start to dampen consumer confidence and start to affect the demand curve. And the supply chain impact of that is that many retailers and consumer packaged companies, they have to order stuff from overseas a year, a year and a half earlier, right? So before perhaps what we, what we had now. So we have also now orders being canceled and fewer deliveries coming. So that's another sort of relief point on the supply chain pressure we had a year ago when demand was super high and retailers were ordering to demand patterns from post-pandemic or end of pandemic. And now the interest rates finally dampening demand. We now have less inventory having crossed the pond. A follow-up on that piece, um, because of kind of the imbalance of companies or brands or firms having to order so far in advance, a lot of kind of the bigger retailers in the U.S. were left and in Canada were faced with like these inventory gluts. They just had way too much stuff. How has that shaken out and does that continue to be a problem? Yeah, it was. Uh, so I'll say a couple of things. One is I think the problem was bigger in the U.S. in general. So we saw probably about a year ago now, we saw some of the larger retailers basically come up publicly and say, yeah, we bought too much. We bought too much stuff and we have to clean up some of our inventory overages. And they did that through, like I said, trying to cancel some orders, obviously heavy promotion activity, markdowns, et cetera. Um, we saw that in the U.S. starting about a year ago. Here in Canada, it was not as bad, uh, but that was was the case. We definitely had some retailers, but it was just more mixed, right? So this is where the kind of retail does matter. So if we exclude food and consumables, where that's obviously less of a problem because we're not buying it overseas, it's not long lead time, this really applies to a category of general merchandise and apparel, to be honest. And uh, some companies definitely overbought and we saw some markdown. Some were a lot more aggressive with cutting how much they bought. And what we saw how we saw play out was things that basically tied to what I call uh, pandemic friendly categories. So think about a lot of sports, entertainment, leisure, redoing your backyard, backyard furniture, barbecues, believe it or not, were a big topic I've talked a lot about. These are things that were flying off the shelves literally a year or two ago. Not so much now. And so depending how many barbecues you had in your DC or on the water over from Asia, you probably have, depending on who you have, so many barbecues in your DC. So I think that, that what I'm really saying is that it's a mixed situation. Um, it's not as bad now as it was. And I suspect we'll see the inventory stuff maybe linger a little bit through, through summertime. But the clients and retailers that I've been speaking to recently, as they look at their next big buy season, which is going to be back to school, back to college, which they've already made decisions on a few months ago, those buys, I'll bet you right now, dollars to dollars have been tempered down and we won't see as much of that inventory coming in uh, to stores this summer. When they're approaching these big purchasing seasons, is the only difference that we're seeing is that they're pulling back a little bit? Or are we seeing other decisions that they're making um, look a bit different as well? A uh, couple things. So, yeah, I mean, in retail, it's a little bit complex, but if I keep it simple, I'd say, yes, definitely just reducing the volume of the buy. And a lot of that, quite frankly, is coming from chief financial officers. If you think about how a retailer decides how much inventory to buy, they buy to demand, right? So they say, we're expecting to sell X dollars in the next fiscal year. How much inventory do we need to support that? sales figure and then we flow that inventory in according to the demand plan. So we are going to see a little bit of a tempering on the sales forecast because of the macroeconomic conditions. Therefore, that will flow through to 
lower approvals of how much inventory to buy to support those sales. So that's one way it will happen. The second big way it will happen in some retailers is thinking about their category management strategy. So what I mean by that would be is let's pick food. Let's not pick food. That's an easy one. Let's pick outdoors, like think about backyards. The number of choices I might decide to offer a customer in things like, let's stick with barbecues. It's easy to understand. Do I want to have five barbecues in my assortment or do I want to have 20 barbecues in my assortment? The broader the assortment, the more complicated the inventory is and the bigger the risk is because now I got to predict how much am I going to sell across 20 SKUs versus 10 or 5. So that's what I mean by another way through category management, they can control the inventory a little bit. Interesting. And where do you see demand start to subside first? Like where are the leading indicators there when you're looking at sort of a basket of goods that a regular consumer might buy? What are people pulling back on now? Yeah, for sure, discretionary versus non-discretionary, uh, 100%. In fact, um, that's why I'd refer to, we were talking earlier as we were getting going about our Deloitte Global Consumer Pulse Trackers. So we have a publicly available dashboard. Uh, so if you Google Deloitte Consumer Pulse Tracking Dashboard, you'll see a whole bunch of metrics and data that we share and can go back in time. And one of the, the pieces we have there is around wallet share. We ask consumers you know, in Canada and in several other countries, over the next four weeks, where do you plan to put your money to spend your wallet, right? And if we look at that, you know, we have sort of two sides to that, uh, that diagram. One is all a bunch of discretionary categories, clothing, uh, travel, all those versus non-discretionary, food, home goods, your mortgage payment, et cetera. What we see is... Um, you know, again, and it does depend on income, right? The lower the income that you skew towards income, the higher amount you're going to be spending on those essential categories. And, and obviously, what's unfortunate about the situation right now is inflation uh, hurts low-income families disproportionately worse. And that's unfortunate, right? Because there's just not as much savings to buffer the higher costs, and there's just not as much money left over at the end of the day. And that's why, you know, we still see, we saw this during holiday and we see it even right now in our latest March pulse where, you know, one in two Canadians are reporting only having enough money at the, at the end of the month left over to kind of do something fun. So there's just not a lot of money left over to spend on travel and clothing and entertainment as, as there would have been you know, even just 12, 18 months ago. So if you're a company, you know, if your product is in one of these categories that is susceptible or vulnerable to falling demand earlier in a business cycle. Yeah. Uh, how are you thinking about price right now? You know, maybe we've gone through two years where you could raise your prices relatively freely uh, amid broader inflation. Are they now starting to pull back on that or change the way that they think about that? So what I can tell you is uh, from a demand of our services, so so in the chair that I sit in, which you know is, is National Retailer for Deloitte, so I have the opportunity to kind of understand like bird's eye view what our retail clients in Canada are asking for help on, right? Because that's part of the business that we're in is helping our clients essentially do better, make more money, serve clients better, et cetera. Uh, you know, price strategy and promotional strategy right now is one of our hottest services, right? So we have a lot of merchants and clients coming to us, you know, saying, you know, retailers by definition have to know how to price. So we were kind of in that business, right? So we've been a long time. What's different now is, you know, how to get really sharp on price using science versus just gut. Uh, in retail, 
for better or for worse, uh, merchants that are responsible to set price, you know, they might tell you that they use a lot of data science and hard data to do it. But truthfully, for the most part, historically, it was a lot by the gut, right? I'm a merchant. I know my business. I know what my customers will pay. And I price accordingly. And of course, I do comp shops and I check my competitors and all that basic stuff. What's changing now, and part of it's due to COVID, part of it's just due to retailers improving and investing in their pricing capabilities, is really trying to understand how to protect margin, right? And, why, and the reason I say margin, uh, Taylor, is because it's not just about the retail shelf price. It's also now about the input costs and the input prices, which is basically what I'm paying my vendors, right? So that's a bit of the shift in the pricing conversation now. So we no longer talk about price as just being what a retailer should put on a shelf. We now talk about margin, right? Because at the end of the day, a retailer does not pay employees or vendors with sales dollars. You pay it with what's left over after you pay your vendors, pay your staff, and we have like no margin left. Sure. So we talk about margin, and that's why it's a delicate art and science, right? So it's a matter of we have no shortage of price increases coming our way from vendors. Doesn't matter what business you're in, food, non-food, apparel, etc. And then, of course, you know, retailers are in the business to make money, and therefore they have to figure out how much of that can I pass on to my consumer, how much of that can I absorb, and that is there's no easy answer for that, right? Some of it is dependent on maybe I absorb more as a retailer now to help my customer, knowing that this is going to be over at some point in time, the inflation, and then I can sort of relax it a little bit. In some cases, it won't be, and I have to pass it on. And that's why we see a lot of stories in the headlines. And if you ask me to comment, I cannot comment on you know, a lot of what's happening publicly with the grocers in Canada and whatnot. But the reason you see a lot of what you see play out publicly in the media is because we definitely have a perception, and we see it in our Consumer Pulse tracker, where Canadians and shoppers from other countries do believe and they have a perception that retailers are raising prices more than the input costs I described, right? And so that's a pretty tough spot for a retailer to be in because if I'm the CEO of Retailer X and I'm, I'm, I'm put on the spot to say, hey, why do you keep passing all those costs and you're, you know, it feels like you're charging anymore, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Because truthfully, they are getting costs coming from the input side and they can't absorb them all because in some elements of retail, those margins I talked about are razor thin, right? In food, margins are you know, mid-single digits. And so they have to figure out how to play the politics, the public relations, the vendor management, and it's really complicated. And there's no playbook and no history for it. Has the technology, like improved technology, use of data science, these things that maybe were not available during the last big recession in 2007, 2008, have those given retailers more ability to raise prices? Like now they can see, oh, you know, if I raise my price by five cents, it's actually not going to cost me that much. Like, has that given them more of a advantage over consumers than when they were just going by gut instinct? Yeah, so there's definitely a lot more tools and data available to understand. Um, there used to be a concept of pricing we would talk about a retail called the imperceptible gap. And what that means in English and not in consulting speak is there's a certain range of increase a retailer can do. And we used to talk about that being in the, I would say, 4 to 7% range, where if I raise the price of any one item by 4 to 7%, the customer won't notice. In other words, 
a customer only has the ability to remember so much on price. And by the way, in grocery, which is a good example, um, that that's roughly, you know, they save for about, you know, 30 to 50 items. The average shopper that routinely goes grocery shopping roughly knows what a tube of toothpaste or, a, you know, a tube of ketchup or, you know, a bag of oranges, you know, you pick your staples. They kind of know what the right price is. And if you play with that by a few single percentage points, you know what? Won't impact demand. The problem is in food specifically that we've seen inflation in double digits. So we know, and, and then they, you see that the shelf price has increased by more than five, seven percent. It's not imperceptible anymore. It's very perceptible, which is why we're having the issue we're having. So the way retailers are dealing with that um, is through a couple of means. One is smarter promotions, right? So how and what we promote, how much we mark it down, what percentage of the assortment we mark down. We can also play with perceptions on pricing and promotions that way, right? So for example, if you walk down an aisle at a grocery store, maybe I don't mark down um, 10 items by 20%, maybe I mark down 20 items by 7%. So how many items are on markdown versus the depth of the markdown, those types of decisions, to your point, Taylor, is a mechanism that can be used to sort of share with uh, customers, you know, well, how much of the store is on sale? Like if you walk out, we used to call it the sea of tags, those tags that hang off the shelf that say, you know, on sale. Well, something on sale for 10% or 5% or 20% does make a difference. So we talk about those types of levers. It feels like I'm seeing less of those for sale signs, Marty, when I walk through the store. Is that accurate? Or at least there was a point in the pandemic where I was noticing like you kind of go into, you know, a shoppers or a grocery store to like buy a tube of toothpaste. And I was so used to the frequency of like having a sale option. And those kind of went away. Is that accurate at all? Um, it's really hard to say because the, uh, you know, there's, there's so many types of promotions, right? So there's ones that you see in store, like you described, there's, uh, there's promotions that are online only. There's just so many different ways to communicate to the shopper now. Uh, I would admit to you that as a retail uh, leader even here at Deloitte, even I have a hard time wrapping my head around you know, how promotional the market is. But I can tell you from a consumer perspective, which is how I like to look at things, because ultimately I do believe the, the customer, for the most part, is right. Um, we definitely are seeing a lot of sort of take up of those retailers that tend to do better at promotional planning execution, definitely tend to sort of show up more strong in the consumer mind as being more value oriented, right? So the, the notion of the value proposition, and this is important too, this whole conversation is the value proposition in the sector, right? So like food is not just food. We have discount food and we have non-discount food. We know for a fact, because look at the public reports of our grocers, the discount banners of our large grocers are outperforming, right? They are definitely taking some share from their brother and sister batters that are non-discount oriented. So if you're a grocer, you're playing a portfolio game, right? You have a portfolio of brands and banners and you're trying to optimize the margin across that portfolio. So perhaps you're getting a little bit less traffic or a little bit less action on the non-discount side and you're getting on the discount side, you're not balancing your portfolio to still make as much margin dollars as you can as a as an entity, if you will, right? So there's a lot of things at play that does rely on very good data science. And we're seeing a lot of investment going into that now more than ever. But it's hard because the skills are just not there. We don't have enough people that can do it in the industry. That's an interesting point that I want to follow up on what, what you just talked about, 
uh, with share market share and volume versus price? Because it seemed like for a while at least, maybe this is changing, but a lot of retailers were pushing on price, and that seemed to be you know what they were talking about on earnings calls is we're going to move our margin by by pushing price. Uh, do you see that changing at all as people start to, I guess, tap out of discretionary income? Are we going to see more retailers start to try to take share by, you know, maybe moderating on price and trying to get more volume? It's a tricky one. Um, what, I, what I can tell you is that the consumer is pretty much done with price increases. That's no surprise. You don't have to be retailers, but you know that. Uh, that doesn't mean price increases are over. They're not. They're, they're going to still continue. Or we're still, you know, what's just interesting about inflation is inflation is always reported as a percentage change over the last reporting period, right? It, it's the it's what it's compared to that's interesting, right? So we say inflation is declining. It is, but prices are still going up, right? So the pace of growth, the slope, I would say, is flattening, right? The pace of inflation is flattening, but it's still growing. Right. And it's pretty unlikely we're going to see that reverse where prices are, you know, coming back to where they were. They probably never will. Let's be honest. They probably never will. So, so what we're trying to focus on is keeping the slope flatly flatting. So we stop the price rise because the consumers say, I got no more money. My earlier point about, you know, I just have no more money left after I pay my rent, you know, my fuel and my food. I don't have much left to go buy on clothes and go out to movies and go out to eat and travel and all those, you know, uh, discretionary stuff. So, we have to focus on that. And in some businesses in retail, that's going to be easier said than done in food. It's going to be super hard because there's very little control. Those input prices on costs, they're coming from other areas that grocers, for example, have a hard time controlling and negotiating. So they're trying their best to play that game as we talked about. But if you go to like, you know, apparel and fashion and general merchandise, there's other options, right? So there's options on trade downs, for example, private label or store brands. We're definitely seeing an uptick on that for obvious reasons. Um, you know, in the what I would say is in the luxury segment, um, it's a little bit less of a concern because we're talking about the one percent, and hmm. for good or for bad, the one percent doesn't hit them as much, right? So maybe their stock portfolio went down a little bit, but it's still pretty big, and it's a lot of money in the bank. So, oh well, I'm a little bit less rich but I can still go spend a luxury product. It's really the consumer that's on the extreme low income side, or quite frankly, in the mushy middle, um, where if you're a retailer focused on those segments, you gotta be careful. You have to come up with other ways to offer them value beyond just price because you can't do much more raising your prices. You gotta figure out a different way, right? So think about, for example, trading down as we talked about it could be also different brands you'd have to introduce to your assortment where perhaps you're looking we talked about shrinking the assortment maybe you need to take out a couple brands and bring in lower price points right to kind of change that customer value proposition a little bit but you know it's all really tricky because we are talking about a moment in time it is painful right now but it will come and go and you can't play too much with this assortment because it will eventually impact your brand longer terms as a that's a balancing act glad that you mentioned the assortment because i wanted to ask about the luxury piece because if we're yeah. seeing kind of the sustained demand in the luxury sector and kind of this booming you know demand for the discount goods like does it run the risk of creating these this, this like two 
kind of like these diverging paths of like where you either have, you know, so many discount options and then so many luxury options, but then like kind of nothing left in the middle. Like when we talk about assortment and think about that long term, like some of the fashion brands are like getting rid of their mid-tier brands and like those aren't going to be like options anymore. I think it was like Lacoste, like Lacoste had done something like that, like, like that um, recently. And so in terms of the assortment that we're going to see when this scenario kind of inevitably wraps up, are we going to see kind of long-term impacts from these kind of the short-term demand that we're seeing right now in both of those areas? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think there will be some shifts. And again, this is another area that we're spending a lot of time with retailers uh, here in Canada, and this is be true outside of Canada as well. Is really getting back to a little bit of basics on the merchandising side, which is really what retail is about at the end of the day. Uh, and you know, the the middle that you talked about, we talked about this a long time. Like one of the reasons that I I personally believe we've seen the department stores, you know, over time, quite frankly, to their demise, is because. They were stuck in the middle. A lot of traditional department stores weren't really on the extreme value side, nor were they on the extreme luxury side. They were quite frankly in the middle, kind of with that mid price point to the average consumer. And we definitely have seen some polarization or what I call bifurcation in retail where, you know, you're serving a clear thing to the folks that have some money and you're serving a different set of things to the lower income uh, families that don't have that kind of uh, cash at their disposal. And that's where we see a lot of the focus going. Being stuck in the middle, I still believe, and I've been saying this quite frankly, way before the pandemic, for over 10 years, being stuck in the mushy middle is not a good place to be because at some point you're gonna get disintermediated out by somebody else, right? Because it's very easy to pick at you if you're stuck in the middle, right? I can come and steal your customer because I can steal them from a low end, and then I can also steal them from the once in a while I'm going to treat myself to something nice. And when I pick apart those two extremes, what's left? It shrinks and it becomes less and less. So that's why I still to this day say, I don't, if I were running a retailer, I would not want to be stuck in the middle. I want to talk a little bit about spending habits and specifically Canadian spending habits, because we've seen kind of demand um, stay strong in both kind of the US and Canada. But I'm wondering if there's any like lessons learned over the last year about the differences between like the Canadian and the US consumer, why demand is holding so strong there, whereas it's kind of tapering off here. Yeah, I, you're right. They, they both kind of follow very similar. Like I did, you know, before we got together today, looked at a little bit of our track and that's you and Canada. It's not very different, by the way, right? Some of the reasons why the customer has been or the consumer has been very resilient so far. And by the way, I think this is about to change. We'll come back to the recent stats can uh, data. But, you know, we had uh, post pandemic, which is still true right now, fairly low unemployment. So people are working. And what we know in retail from history is that people are working. They're still spending right? They might spend differently in terms of categories or price points and all that kind of stuff, but there's still spending. Um, and there's also savings. We also know because of the pandemic, Canadians, Americans, and consumers will be saved up. You know, we used to cite anywhere from seven to 10 years worth of savings in two years. So there's a lot of money. And so we have talked about this in an earlier interview, a lot of money in bank accounts and mattresses that is now being dipped into, right? Because prices are going up and they're dipping into savings. So that's why We've, I believe we've seen a resilient consumer. Now, good times always come to an end. And what we're seeing now, if you look at StatsCan's stat release just two weeks ago, 
in January, you saw that retail sales, if you exclude autos and fuel, which I don't tend to include, you know, was anemic. It was, you know, mid decimal points, I think 0.4, 0.5% growth, right? In January over the previous reporting period. And the forecast was by Stats Canada February, now we might start to see it go down even lower and, and at some point potentially go flat or into negative. So I think we are now about to hit the tipping point where like to our earlier point, consumers tapped out. Um, they may not be willing to dip into savings anymore. And although they're still working, you know, there's this fear about, like I said, we see them delaying large purchases. You know, over 45% of Canadians are officially delaying large purchases, starting to put off or rethink about vacations and travel and leisure. So I think actually the next 90 days is going to be very telling around are we actually in a recession, entering a recession? And that part, don't get so hung up on the R word. It doesn't, it's not really what I'm focused on. It does depend on what the consumer is saying they're going to spend or not spend. And I think the latest initial forecast from Stats Can seems to be pointing in the direction of the consumers tapped out and we might start to see retail sales start to taper off. In a situation like that, this might be not a very smart question, but in a situation like that where we do have a recession, people are losing their jobs and consumer spending really takes a hit. Uh, why wouldn't prices fall? You know, you mentioned earlier that the sort of trajectory for inflation now we're trying to get it down so wow. prices are not rising as as quickly as as they have been. But in that circumstance, why do retailers not say, okay, look, we are going to cut prices by ten percent across the board because otherwise we're just not going to sell anything? Yeah, so I think in some cases they will. Like again, it's going to be think about portfolio management, right? So again, in terms of managing price perception. From a retail perspective, in some areas, they will try to push price down if they can. In other areas, they won't. But, but you know, at the end of the day, it's quite a bit of work to rewire the system, right? Like we even, we even go back to supply chain just for a little rabbit hole for a sec, right? Like the supply chain challenges that we talked about earlier on in the discussion, uh, you know, the outcome of a lot of that and the outcome of the pandemic was, you know what, we better be a lot more resilient and a lot more agile. And we just spent the last... 20 plus years as an industry, taking our supply chains overseas, concentrating manufacturers with fewer organizations, globalizing. Why have we been doing that for two, three decades? Because it helped take costs down. Well, okay, we enjoyed the benefits of that for the past two or three decades. Pandemic happened, life happened, holy crap. Well, that didn't work out so well all the time because now we had no agility, no resiliency, and we were dependent on one factory. For everything and let's how did that go for us right not so good so we tend to learn from that so now we see supply chains being re-strategized not all overseas some being re, you know look at what the u.s is doing with chips they're spending billions of dollars to now build stuff in the u.s that has been happening in asia for 20 plus years right yeah. that's a big big move to do and that's just one example so like they can't rewire a whole system globally overnight. So like the notion of prices having to come down, it's it's really hard to do that because all the other all this other stuff happening, labor rates are up. So you're gonna go tell your staff, by the way, I know we just spent the last two years raising minimum wage, giving you more. Sorry, now we're gonna reduce your wages. So it's just not gonna happen. It's just not gonna and because there's labor shortages. So if we try to reduce labor, so you're gonna make the problem worse. 
So we're kind of stuck a little bit. Like I don't think costs can really materially come down. We just got to stop the increases and reset the baseline. Do you think that retailers are going to be able to resist uh, moving their supply chains back overseas, even if they make some effort towards, you know, onshoring or Frenchshoring, whatever you want to call it now, as cost pressures, you know, the same pressures that led them to do it in the first place, do you think that they're just going to move them back to China, back to Vietnam, or is that a something that's here to stay? Hmm. Uh, I So I think, again, moving your supply chain around is a complicated, risky thing, right? Like it, we, we, you might, we might think on the surface, ah, no problem. I'm just going to go from a factory here to a factory there. What's the difference of where the shirt is made, right? Like in terms of like the process of making a shirt or whatever the item is. The truth matters. It's very complicated. There's a lot of quality risks. There's a lot of checks and balances. Um, we haven't even talked about what's really new and happening, and that's really shipping supply chains, which is ESG, right? So think about climate and sustainability. That's probably having a bigger impact, quite frankly, on supply chain strategy now than price. Can you explain that? Yeah. Oh, so Sarah, do you want to jump in just nope. before I do? I was going to ask the same question. Okay. Uh, you guys must work together. You think alike. Uh, but yeah, like, so for example, and this is big in apparel, right? very big in apparel. So thinking about, again, as part of the cost structure and where something is made, it's now also, how is it made? Who makes it? How do I track and trace and report? Because now we have regulators starting to come down and mandate and regulate what I have to report on and how I have to report on it. And boy, I don't want to be that company that says, oh, yeah, well, we employ child labor and we produce a ton of CO2. That's the wrong direction. What we need to be reporting is we have safe places to work. We're in compliance with who our workers are. We're working towards net zero goals. All these important things we're seeing in the public and happening with governments, regulators. This does not, by the way, reduce costs. It increases costs. So we have forces working against the cost factor that, again, is another pressure point why I think it's going to be very hard for costs to go backwards. What we have to try to do is keep them level and stop them from increasing because things like ESG we just talked about are very much supply chain oriented. One thing I'm curious about is, did retailers just see this coming? I mean, they went through the pandemic. They experienced the increased costs that came with that from supply chain issues. And then, you know, you see this ESG thing coming up on the horizon. Was the pandemic and I guess the period that we just went through just a convenient time to get these price increases out of the system that they felt like they were going to have to do anyway? Hmm. Yeah, I don't think it's that devious. No. <laughs> I, 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 I like to assume positive intent. Maybe I'm wrong about well, that. It's not a devious thing. It's just like, you know, we're going to have to raise prices. We may as yeah. well do it while everyone else is doing it so that we don't take hell for it. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, if, I, we, if I give you the Marty opinion on that, right, because my, my, my purse just having been in the business, you know, yeah. for 25 years, I'm sure some of that has happened. Of course. Now, can I tell you who, what, when, or how? No. But has some of uh, has some of that been opportunistic? Of course. How, I mean, companies at the end of the day they're run by human beings like the three of us, sure. and you know, you know humans do things the way humans do things, right? They're they're opportunistic. Humans are opportunistic, and is there some opportunistic behavior around pricing? 
for sure. Do I think it's the predominant force? No, no. But I do think there's some of that in there. Uh, because at the end of the day, we do operate in a pretty transparent environment, right? Like if we were talking, you know, Tanya, 20 years ago before digital, before the internet, there was very little transparency. Like when I, all I knew as a shopper is when I walked into a store or I had a catalog sent to my house, what the price of this was at retailer A and retailer B. And I don't really know. Like I didn't know a lot, right? But I have a lot more access to information. I was a consumer. I can I could look at marketplaces. I could look at what it costs to buy this item or a like item in Shanghai versus LA versus Paris. And like, so, and I can even get some costing information if I really want to hunt through the web. Like, so you can't really pull wool over the consumer's head today like you probably could 20 years ago or 10 years ago. That's why I'm saying I like to assume positive intent. So, some opportunistic, you know, price taking, if you will. But for the most part, it really is driven by supply, demand, and economics. So if companies are dealing with their own pressures, like you mentioned, the ESG requirements, we talk about labor costs, like going up all around the world and like their own pressures price-wise on the supply chain. It's like, how does this not get totally out of control? Like if a factory has to move kind of to, you know, to Canada, I'm wondering if like the next thing that people are looking at is like the dependency on like, oh, we need like maybe automation to like, you know, to counteract maybe some of these higher prices in other areas. So that's a very, very, very good point, Sarah. So I guess what you're, what you're pointing at is what a retailer is doing to try to mitigate some of what they cannot control, right? In other words, yeah. like without without having to pay, you know, instead of paying, you know, let's make it up uh, 20 bucks for a whole chicken, I don't have to pay 40 bucks for a whole chicken at some point, right? Or, or the equivalent in apparel. Um, yes, so that's where, you know, cost containment strategies become really important. And so a little bit less so on, you know, negotiating and, and you know, driving your vendors to the wall and, and demanding, you know, the more you demand for your vendors, they're going to have to find it on there. And there's only so much you can push a vendor before the quality goes really down towards suckiness to the point where no one's going to buy it and it's going to fall apart, right? So um, you're right. They try to attack the ones they can, which are labor. So where we see a lot of automation, all of investment going is in the store and in the distribution center. So there's a ton of investment going into automating DCs right now. We're redeployed of doing a lot of work around you know, robotics and what we call intelligent automation. In fact, we just opened up a warehouse a Deloitte warehouse just outside of Montreal, where we invested in all the latest and greatest automation to bring clients through to show them how to offset what now costs a lot more to run a DC, right? Because DC, remember what it was like to get a, a warehouse worker 12 months ago? It was, first of all, impossible, and you had to pay them a lot more because of this by men. And that's not sustainable. So we see a lot of investment coming into automation and robots in DCs. That's one big input. Now, in a, in a similar way, but it's a lot more difficult, we see that happening in stores, right? So, for example, in the bathroom of a store where the magic happens, I like to say, where inventory comes in, gets sorted, there is some robotics and automation making its way slowly into that process. You know, you're going to start seeing some things like dark stores, which we used to talk about in an e-commerce world, being to pick, pack, and ship orders to, you know, for e-com. And so what's happening now is a little bit less of the traditional dark store, more where there's hybrid stores. So the role of the store continues to shift. So you might see different kinds of store formats where maybe it's in this location, there is no e-call work happening. It's all about coming in and buying and taking it. 
another location. It might be part of the store is for the you know customer facing. Part of the store is dark or gray where it's you know serving e-com and there's more automation. You're going to start think, seeing things like more digitization in stores. Think about something simple like digital price tags. It may shock you. One of the highest labor beyond running a cash where you've seen self-checkout and automation happen already and more of that will happen. Changing price tags. So high inflation with high inflation, come guess what that comes with? Changing freaking price tags more often than you had to do it right. before. <laughs> labor, believe it or not, thousands of price changes a grocery store makes every week. Thousands times however many thousands of stores they have. That adds up. So digital price tags eliminates that overnight. So there's a lot of those kinds of strategies and even shelf and inventory taking, right? Like instead of having a person go and scan holes and pulling inventory from the back room, that can be done with cameras and vision, maybe robots, maybe not robots. We don't know yet, but that kind of automation is now starting to finally be taken seriously in a storm. When are we going to start seeing stuff like that roll out? Because I've seen like in London, like in England, you'll go to like the Zara and it's like fully self-checkout. I think they actually yep. have um, checkout similar at like the Eaton Center. I've seen some grocery stores where like you take out a can and like another one's replaced from like the back of the fridge, seemingly automated. It's like, when are we going to see, like what retailers are kind of, is my question, like leading the charge? Like where are we going to start seeing it? And like, what are the things that we're going to start seeing soon like how far away are digital price tags and everything else yeah so so i'm going to stay away from some site particular retail names because i that's something that right. we, we don't, don't talk about or unfortunately we do work with most clients and so therefore i won't share brand names but i can tell you like on the apparel side and you have to name one of them there's others by the way most of them are not based out of canada by the way they do tend to come from asia or europe so so the retailers based out of asia and in parts of Europe tend to be a little bit more advanced. So here in Canada, North America, we're a little slower to adopt. But things like, you know, those bids, if you walk in, there's a lot of big sporting goods retail that's been doing it here in Canada right now. You can walk into, that's based out of Europe, where you just take your stuff, you drop it in the bin. They're all RFID tagged. And it's a self-checkout. But instead of having to scan every single item, you literally drop it down. It tells you your much, and out you go, right? Oh, that's great. That's already happening right now. It's happening right now. There's three or four apparel retailers that are doing it right now in Canada, but they're not Canadian retailers. Just take note of that, right? Um, you know, and then and then we're seeing that happen. You know, digital price tags. Funny part is, I've been in this business 25 years. We talked about digital price tags for the last 20. The, the change now, Sarah, and I know this is going to sound so darn silly, is that simply put, retailers are finally waking up because the costs are coming down. It's supply demand. The technology wasn't as good. Like, here's the deal, right? I talked about the labor required to change a price tag manually being replaced by a digital price tag. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason we didn't see digital price tags sooner is the battery life in those little tags sucked. So what happened was retailers started putting them in and realized instead of changing price tags every two weeks, they were changing batteries. <laughs> Go figure, right? So... Basic innovation, right? Hey, let's come up with a better battery so we don't, right? So little things like that took years, unfortunately, to do. Now we have digital price technology where batteries can last way longer. Why? Because someone decided to focus on it, simply put. We needed, Could have happened 10 years ago. Just we needed uh, a round of inflation to make the economics of digital price tags make sense. <laughs> remember, I talked about, remember I talked about one thing that's still constant is Retailers are still run by humans so far. 
it's humans. You know, it's human decision making and deciding where to put focus, where to put innovation. And what we know for a fact is retail typically has been quite slow to innovate and adopt innovation up until recently. They were behind. Do you have a theory of why Canadian retailers, North American retailers, I guess, are slower than Asian and European counterparts? Um, I, so, I mean, it's an age old question. I, I think it's uh, the competitiveness, quite frankly. Uh, there was just, there was a higher, again, it's, and it's different in different sectors, but, you know, grocery is a good example where digital price tags, I'll pick on that because that's what I happened to spend some time on recently. And then even RFID and apparel. So both RFID and apparel and digital price tags in Europe took off years ago, way before here, right? And part of that was just the competitive intensity and dynamics and the fact that in Europe, for example, if you're a grocery operating in multiple countries in Europe, just think about the different currencies and price changes, right? Mm -hmm. You kind of had to find a solution for managing prices in multiple countries and multiple currencies. In US, one currency, doesn't matter what state. In Canada, one country, doesn't matter what province. So like some of those little built-in systemic things just were not present here that were present in Europe um, and in Asia where just it made more sense and therefore it was easier and the business case was there. Marty, this was fantastic. Taylor, do you have any more questions? Yeah. No, that was great. So interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Well, that was a fascinating conversation with Marty, especially since, like, as you know, Taylor, in the Western world, buying stuff is so ingrained in our day-to-day lives that it's all anyone can talk about, right? Why the cost of things is rising. And I think what I learned in hearing from Marty is that there's no one clear answer. And it's a very, very complicated situation. But I think what we kind of nailed down was why, where some of the pressures are coming from and kind of what the future of the industry could kind of look like and like in terms of where the retail sector is going. So I thought that was really interesting, really just looking forward the technology piece as prices are rising, how is technology going to play a role to maybe mitigate that to some degree? But um, yeah, that, that stuck with me. Did you find interesting? Yeah, no, it was interesting to hear about how, you know, it really did take a, this latest round of inflation to get that technology of, you know, digital price tags adopted. Right. And it makes sense when you think about it, like if you're not changing the prices that often, then it's not a priority. But as soon as you do have to start doing that, then it becomes like, Oh shit, we got to figure out how to do this in a a more efficient way. So it's interesting to see how these things sort of ripple throughout uh, business. But yeah, totally. I mean, I always, it's always good to hear the, um, I always enjoy hearing about the internal mechanics of how these decisions are made at a company level around things like pricing and when do we raise prices and by how much do we raise prices. Like I didn't realize that fact that Marty shared with us about, uh, I think he called it the imperceptible something, basically like the four to 7% price change where they figure that, you know, consumers don't really notice that so they can kind of move within that boundary without getting any pushback. But then once you move beyond that, and I think we've seen this, right, when it comes to groceries and a few other sectors, once you start going into 15, 20%, people get really pissed off and you start to have problems with your brand. So you have to take that into account as well. Uh, It's just interesting to see that these decisions, as you said, are more complicated, I think, than they're often uh, 
portrayed. Yeah, it's nice to hear from a person who has like had their ear to the ground on this for like the past couple of decades, right? Because he's seen everything. And there's some interesting things that he pointed out, which I think we're probably feeling um, a lot, right? Which is that like customers are really fed up. Like we have finally reached a point where customers can't really take any more price increases. Like we finally reached that point. We've been talking about it for years and people are kind of, um, you know, people are kind of done with it too, right? But like, as we learned a couple weeks ago, right, when we spoke to um, when we spoke to uh, the founder of Evelyn's Crackers, right, there's so many different um, there's so many different price considerations that go into. I think what's more the most difficult one to tackle is probably the grocery cost too, because we learned in that conversation that like what you're paying at the checkout is as much as like 20, 30%, right? Like if it is just going to packaging. And so that conversation is obviously one that is top of mind for people, just what they're paying for groceries. It seems to be an increasingly complicated one because everyone's kind of pointing the finger at each other. And there's so many different considerations um, along the price chain, but it's interesting to also take a look at um, other, you know, sectors, whether it's like apparel and see, um, I guess, more concretely, like where the shifts are happening. Yeah, it was interesting to hear about also how retailers have changed their approach to pricing as they've developed more ways to take in and process and analyze data. Um, And I think that there will probably be interesting consequences of that. Like I have a hard time imagining that consumers are going to benefit from that. I mean, yes, there is more transparency in the sense that we can more easily price shop online, but then there are some things that, you know, you can price shop all you want, but it's not really going to help you. And groceries is one of them, right? So if you are able to take in all that data and sort of optimize your prices uh, to achieve the highest margin, then maybe it does mean that we all end up paying a little bit more than we would otherwise. And maybe that is a, a upward pressure on inflation that's uh, less discussed than, than it ought to be. Some of these underlying factors that you know, motivate the actual decision-making process at the level of the boardroom or the store manager who's making these pricing choices. Definitely. Well, like Marty said, um, the next 90 days or so, are going to be very telling for consumer spending behavior specifically. So I'm excited to see what data comes out there, see how, you know, habits are changing. And, you know, maybe we'll have to have Marty back on at some point to give us a bit of an update on what the landscape looks like. Okay, well, should we leave it there for now? I think so. This has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm your co-host, Sarah Bartnika. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Bartnika. And I'm Taylor Scollin. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. And you can find more episodes exactly like this, diving into the Canadian business and economics topics that you want to know about by searching Free Lunch at the Peak wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.